again. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show the proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, well, we've got quite a passage this morning, a lot there, and I've been looking forward to walking through this together. So um, I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, verse 11 gives us the really the overarching perspective of this book, and we've been talking about this almost every week, but, but Peter says it again in verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, literally in the Greek, beloved I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So what Peter is doing in this letter is giving his readers, giving us an identity, and this is it. You are beloved foreigners and exiles. It's this oxymoron, right? This kind of twofold identity. On the one hand, you're beloved, you're, you're chosen, you're precious to God, and yet because of that, you've been called out of the world systems and of the worldly ways of life, and you are now foreigners and exiles. Uh, you don't belong, and you shouldn't belong, because God created this situation. He's the one that identified you as the beloved, and because that, he's the one who has now created a situation where you don't feel like you really fit in with the world anymore. That's precisely how it's supposed to be. And so First Peter is all about how do we embrace that twofold identity, and how do we live out that identity in the world in ways that glorify and honor God? And, you know, that's what we're trying to figure out right now, right? We, how, how do we live well in this world? We've been in the midst of this pandemic. We've been in the midst of all sorts of political, racial tension. Churches are splitting. Uh, life is hard. And we have our own stuff that we're dealing with uh, on top of the larger issues in life. And we're all asking the question, how do we live well? Like, how, how do we do this? This feels like it's getting harder. It's not getting easier. And how do we live well in the midst of our own lives and the world in which we find ourselves? And really, First Peter really addresses that in some, some beautiful ways. And um, there's a lot in this passage. Um, let me give you an, an image of what I see as kind of these concentric circles that Peter talks about in this passage. And I want to address each one of them uh, in turn. So first, he looks at this first, in verse 11, he talks about our own sinful desires, okay, that are within us, and he's going to have something to say about that. And then after that, in verse 12, he's going to talk about our life among, he calls them the pagans, or yours might say the Gentiles, but life lived in the world with folks who are just going about their lives. How do we live that out? And then thirdly, he talks about the authorities, and here he'll focus on the 
government authorities and how we live in the midst of that, all right? So I want to look at these, each of these concentric circles. Each one gives us a very clear command of what we're supposed to do. And all three commands are really challenging okay, and really inspiring. So we're going to dive in where angels fear to tread today, and we'll see how this goes. Um, so let's start with this first one. Um, and I just want to say, like, this, man, this is a really relevant passage. I mean, every passage is relevant, but, like, you're going to feel the relevance of this passage today and uh, in light of the, the year we've been through. And um, as always, my <laughs> I'm doing my best to be faithful to what Scripture is inviting us into and to present the Word of God to each of our consciences, each of our minds, for us to offer ourselves as the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that you have for me in this passage? How do you want me to respond? So that's my goal today. That's always my goal. Sometimes I do it better than other times, but that's certainly the goal here today. All right, so let's start first in verse 11, where... Um, Peter talks about this, the sinful desires within us. Let me read it again. Verse 11. Dear friends, or beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Okay? Sinful desires, or you might, yours might say fleshly desires. These are the, the, the kind of the part of us that wants to live independent of God and the desires that come out of that. Very natural desires for security, significance, satisfaction, really natural desires, but all of the broken and sinful ways we go about pursuing those desires through power, through sex, through substances, through fame, through revenge, you know, whatever, just these kind of core drives inside of us that are trying to get after good things, but usually in really bad ways. And we all have them, right? Sinful desires. And Peter gives us a very clear command of what we should do with these, and it's this word here, abstain from those desires. Withdraw from those desires. Uh, Get some distance from those desires. Don't Flirt with those desires. Don't coddle those desires. Don't kind of feed those desires on the side. Don't like, you know, give them some room in your life. No, no. You want to distance yourself from those things. Why? Because these, he says, wage war against your soul. Sinful desires within us wage war against our souls. And, and I was really um, caught by the, the strength of language there, Right? That Peter's saying, guess what? There is a war. There is a battle out there, and it is a war for your soul. This is the war. Will I choose to treasure God? Will I choose to trust God? Will I choose to find my joy and meaning and purpose in God? Or will I go after these other things that are inside of me? And it's a war. And so the question is, What he's saying is you need to distance yourself from these other desires because otherwise these will distance you from your God. But there's a war for your soul. And I'll just, the thing that really hit me about this verse uh, this week was he's going to talk about our own sin. He's going to talk about the kind of the the pagan world around us. And he's going to talk about the religion or the the authorities. And in all three of those, there's only one war that he describes. He's saying the real war you're at is with the desires within you. Your, your ultimate war is not with the culture. Your ultimate war is not with the government. The war is with your own desires. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many Christians would articulate things in two, you know, 2021 that way. And if you're tempted to say, yeah, but Peter, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on in 21st century American you know, life. Like, you, you don't understand what we're going through. I, I promise you, Peter would look at you and say, 
No, you don't understand. You know nothing about first century Roman society and Emperor Nero. You think you have it bad. You don't understand. I promise you that would be his response, okay? So we're going to get to that, to talk about that. But I found that interesting that for Peter, the greatest danger is not the culture, it's not the government, it's sin. And sin is something that we all experience. And so he's saying, deal with that first and foremost, right? Because the best thing that you can give to the culture is your own holiness. I mean, really, I really feel that. The best thing that the church can give to the culture or to the government or to anything in society is its own holiness, its own pursuit of holiness, which means, in this case, fleeing, abstaining from, distancing ourselves from these sinful cravings that drive a lot of what we do. All right? So that's the first circle. Your sinful desires, the command is clear, abstain. All right, let's go to the second circle. Uh, the pagans, right? There it is. Let me read verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so he now talks about not the stuff within us, but the people around us. Pagans, again, your translation might say Gentiles. Um, might say the nations. It's, it's the folks of this world who don't believe in Jesus, okay, going about just living their lives in the world. And here Peter says, um, they accuse you of doing wrong. And I thought Todd did a good job last week of talking about um, how in that first century, how the Christians were being accused of doing wrong because they, they could no longer participate in a lot of the... Um, kind of the civic religious practices of the day. They, they, couldn't, they didn't worship the gods of the Greco-Roman you know, pantheon. They wouldn't declare their allegiance to Caesar. Uh, and so they were kind of considered atheists. They were considered people who were, who were disturbing the social order of the day. And so they were actually being accused of, of doing wrong, of being evildoers in that context. And I was thinking this week, um, I feel like we're in this moment in our nation's history for one of the first times where Christians are actually being accused of doing wrong for actually being Christians. You know, and like historically in this nation, for the most part, you could be a Christian and not be accused of doing wrong. You might be seen as different or maybe irrelevant to certain things, but, but not like Christians are evildoers. And we find ourselves, as the culture is moving a lot quickly, in this unique place where we, I think increasingly, will be accused of actually being evildoers, being inferior morally to people. I mean, if you hold historic Christian views uh, about, you know, sexuality, for instance, um, uh, about a number of things, um, you're going to start to be accused of actually being evildoers, uh, which is something we're not familiar with. It's, it's, it's kind of new territory. We're, we're figuring this out as we go. But I think this is really, really relevant. Um, so what's the response to that? How do, we, how do Christians respond to being accused of being evildoers? Is it uh, defensiveness? Is it withdrawal? Is it counterattack? What do, we, what do we do? And here's Peter's response to that. Verse 12. Let me read it again. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the response of the Christian to the pagan world that is accusing it of doing wrong. We live such good lives. 
Our conduct is honorable. It's praiseworthy. We live really good lives, and we do that right in the midst of the people who are accusing us of doing wrong. You see that? Okay. What's the goal of this? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's some debate about what what, uh, Peter is saying there. What is the day of visitation? Is he talking about the second coming of Christ? Or is he talking about the day that God visits them when maybe they are converted, that even though they accuse you now of doing wrong at some point, they come to see the light and God visits them and they, they realize, oh my gosh, this is true, all of this is true. Or is this something that happens at the end of time uh, where Jesus Christ returns and they all have to declare the praises of God because at that point it'll be very clear. I, I'm not quite sure what the answer there, but clearly the motivation is you're living lives in such a way because you want the people who are accusing you of doing wrong to come to know God. You want the people who are accusing you of doing wrong to experience the gospel and its goodness. That's why you're living such good lives, so that your light might shine before men, as Jesus said, that they may glorify, you know, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Really tough thing to want really good things for people who are accusing you of doing wrong. But that's the call of 1 Peter. Live such good lives. And I believe that is what America needs right now. It needs Christians and churches living such good lives lives among the pagans. Um, I was uh, made aware of a book recently by a guy named Larry Hurtado, who I've read things of him in the past. He's a, he's a first century um, Christian scholar and kind of a historic historian, Christian historian. Uh, he wrote this little book um, a couple years back called, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Which is a great title. <laughs> but what he's getting at is, gosh, there's tremendous persecution among Christians in the first three centuries. So why on earth would anybody become a Christian? Uh, And the reason is they lived such good lives among the pagans that ultimately the empire was transformed by this new movement of Jesus followers. And what he does is he he identifies kind of five core uh, practices or beliefs or postures that they had in the world that were pretty radical at the time, that were basically just gospel postures, but that changed the world over time. They were distinctive ways that the early church lived. And I want to just give you these, just just to get your minds thinking about this. Oh, there it is, live such good lives. Um, so this is first century versions of living such good lives. Here's what he kind of summarizes as, as five practices of the early church. Um, first, it was a community of reconciliation and forgiveness. So first century Greco-Roman world is an honor and shame culture. Okay, so if, you're, uh, you know, if you are shamed, if you are dishonored, you respond by dishonoring someone else. So it's really, it's a, it's a culture of revenge. It's a culture of, of just pure justice, of getting even if, you've been, you know, if your honor has been disgraced. And the Christians practiced something radically different. They didn't... Um, they didn't seek vengeance on their enemies. They didn't retaliate against their enemies. They didn't, they didn't fight back. I mean, I'm even talking just verbally among their enemies. But they practice a radical concept of reconciliation and forgiveness with one another and even with those who had wronged them. And it was very distinctive. Second one he talks about, uh, Christians practice unity across racial and social economic boundaries. Again, first century Roman culture. Um, you know, you have, you have really wealthy landowners, you have kind of workers, you have slaves, and um, people interact across those spectrums, but friendships were almost always even across the, even, you know, you 
kind of wealthy people were friends, poor people were friends. There wasn't friendship across. But in this, this new community, you had slaves coming to faith, and then you had masters coming to faith, rich landowners and day workers coming to faith and thrown together uh, in, in the same house church, learning to worship together and learning to love one another. Of course, you had Jews and Gentiles, these you know, historic enemies being brought together in the gospel and beginning to figure out how do we be the one people of God in the midst of all these differences that we have. And if you've read any of the letters of the New Testament, you know it wasn't easy. It was clunky. Um, but it was, it was radical in the time. It was, it was a really profound distinctive that ended up changing the world. Uh, here's another one. Uh, hospitality to the poor and suffering. You probably know about this. Jesus has so much to say about the poor and suffering. His life lived for the poor and suffering. And the early Christians really practiced that. Um, there's letters like from, from like Roman governors to some of their subordinates, and they're bemoaning the fact that the Christians were taking better care of the poor than the government was taking. They're making them look bad because the Christians just did such a good job of taking care of the poor. Or they, yeah, there's so many ways that they, they, ex- they expressed hospitality as an expression of the gospel. Um, here's another one. Uh, they were deeply committed to the sanctity of life. Um, so uh, in the first century, abortion was a really dangerous practice, right? And so uh, people who didn't want their kids, they practiced what was called infant exposure. And what they do is a child would be born, and then they would just leave it out in the elements. They might take it to the city dump and just leave it exposed to the elements. This is a common practice. I, m- I imagine most of those babies were girls, not boys, for the most part. Um, and the, the early Christians were the ones who would go and pick up these babies and bring them in. They were, they were like the first century adoption agencies. And the whole thing that they did, it was a hugely sacrificial thing, but they were known to have this commitment to the sanctity of life. One more. Again, I'm just trying to stir your, your thoughts around what living such good lives might look like. The final they, were, uh, they had a commitment to being a sexual counterculture. Okay, first century Roman society was wild. It's, it was very free. You, 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 there's nothing new under the sun, turns out, okay? Uh, and um, kind of extramarital sex was just expected, especially among men. All sorts of practices, sex, just sort of varying uh, degrees of sexual practices. And the Christians had this remarkably narrow sexual ethic in their culture, which was this. One man, one woman, forever in the context of a marriage. That is how God designed this beautiful gift to be expressed and to be experienced. And they looked weird. They were accused of being weird. And yet you had these Christian families that then emerged that had this stability, had this beauty about them. And with the hospitality, it began to change the world. All right, all that to say, these are just examples from one author about how the early church practiced living such good lives. One thing I, I was reading this, what I like about this is this doesn't fit real nicely into like the, like the stereotypical left platform or the stereotypical right platform, right? This kind of cuts across at least the stereotypes that right and left think about. But there's such good life being lived there. And so I think it remains for us now, how do we in our own context... 2,000 years later, Southern California, what does it mean for us to live such good lives among people? And I really do believe that is what is needed. A a church that is living such good lives. The danger, of course, is that we're not living such good lives, that we're assimilating to the ways of the world. 
and, and as I thought about that this week, I thought there's, there's two ways I see Christians assimilating to the world that I think are unfortunate. One is we begin to adopt the beliefs and the attitudes of the world. Again, on the country, uh, and it really saddens me. And so that's a way that we can we cannot live such good lives, distinct lives. And then the other way is that we hold to our historic beliefs, but we become assimilated to the ways world of communicating, that we play the world's, uh, you know, kind of game of, of anger and vitriol and um, really uh, unclear communication. Um, that we just, we from beliefs, but we start treating each other the way the world treats them. And we start, you know, firing off emails and texts the way the world does. And that, that's just cultural assimilation, too. That we, we, we have a different set of beliefs, but we play by the, the ways of the world. And what we're called to do is hold these beliefs, um, but communicate them in very different ways. Let me show you one passage. This is just later in chapter 3 of First Peter. He'll say this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, right? That's the Christian way, gentleness, conviction, but gentleness and respect. And that's another thing I see the church is absolutely assimilating itself to a very secular way of communication that is not gentle and respectful. So we need both. We need the beliefs and we need the ways that we communicate those beliefs, living such good lives, distinctively, in a world that thinks we're very strange. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, let me just read it, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. I'll just stop there. The word authority there can refer to a person uh, or it can refer to a position or a structure. It's kind of just what is set up. Um, it could be any of those things. And, um, you know, this is a year where we have, we have felt the authorities like no other year in my life. Um, this is a year where we have seen expressions of civil disobedience in all sorts of various forms, I would say, unlike any other year, at least in my 45 years. And so this is an incredibly relevant passage to us and a challenging passage to us. Uh, to be subject to, yours might say, um, to find your place uh, within these people and the structures that are, are there in the nation in which you find yourselves. And let me just say right from the, the big idea, here's Peter's big idea. Um, Christians should not be resistant citizens or obnoxious citizens or belligerent citizens, right? We, we should be obedient. We should be compliant. We should be 
Um, we should be eager to work within the structures and people that are in place as much as we can possibly do. Okay, that's the big, let me acknowledge a couple things first. I wanna acknowledge just two complexities that I'm sure many of you are feeling. First is this, um, this was written uh, in the midst of an empire. We live in a democracy, okay? And those aren't apples and oranges exactly. So first century Roman Empire, Christians have no say in the government, right? There, there's no Christians in the government, at least when the gospel takes off. Um, and they have no say in how the government works. Um, we live in a representative democracy, which means um, we do have a say <laughs> in how the government works, at least some say. And actually even, a, I would say, a, a responsibility to how the government works. So uh, we get to, unlike Peter and his followers, we, we get to engage in the political process. We uh, get to vote. Um, we can run for office if that's something we feel called to do. Um, we can speak out when we feel like the government is not enacting laws and policies that we think will help the nation to flourish. And we can also use what the, the legal means that our nation has given us to fight the fights that we think need to be fought. Okay, That's all part of being in democracy. And so I think this word submit in the context of a democracy surely does not mean just silent acquiescence, okay? Because we have a responsibility in actually getting a chance to share our voice and to help shape our little tiny piece of the pie, shape what our nation looks like. So um, there is a fight to be had, and it's a good fight. And I, I don't think submit would say don't fight that fight in the context of the democracy in which we find ourselves, okay? So that's something that needs to be said. Um, the other thing that needs to be said is, look at verse 14. Um, so, submit to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors, and here's the phrase, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Okay, Peter is well aware that sometimes punish those who do wrong and reward those who do right, but they do just the opposite, right? I mean, they're well aware that there are very um, unjust governments that actually don't always engage in perfect justice. And so it's, it's interesting, like when you read the New Testament statements about um, governments, they, they actually kind of cast these fairly glowing terms, like, you know, the emperor's God's servant to do right. And you're like, what about Nero? Like, you, you know this isn't always the case. And of course, they know this is the case. I think one thing they're saying is, um, even bad government is always better than anarchy. Like, the, the alternative is much worse. Um, but I, I just want to acknowledge, of course, there are times when the government isn't just. And sometimes the government might even call us to do something that God would forbid. And so, of course, Christians have to, there are moments where Christians have to say, I'm sorry, we have to obey God rather than man, right? If the government commands us to do something the Lord forbids, then naturally Christians have to do that. And there's a, there's a thread through Scripture of civil disobedience. You know, it starts with Israel and Egypt, and it goes into Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and Babylon, the early the early um, apostles and the religious leaders of the day. There is that thread of civil disobedience, um, which is clear. And what's so challenging, obviously, the conversations we've been having all, all year and a half is um, it's not always clear when something has reached the point of civil disobedience, right? And I personally have room for two Christians to, to disagree on precisely when a moment has come where we have to say, we actually can't submit to this law or this pause. We have to do something because God would forbid us to do this, right? So let me give you a couple examples that are really easy to come up with. So there, you know, just sort of theoretically, a pandemic hits the world, right? <laughs> and the uh, government says, you can't gather in large groups, right? 
um, because we've got a health crisis on our hands. And Christians sit around and think about that, and they say, well, but churches gather. I mean, that's what a church is. It's kind of a gathering. So what do we do, and for how long? I'm not going to solve any of these questions, right? But right, you're going you're gonna to have, have churches and Christians disagreeing on at, at what point have, has the government done something that we can't follow, right? Let me give you a couple of examples. There's a couple other examples I was thinking of. Um, what if the government mandates that whenever you go to a, a, a civic, you know, game, concert, whatever, uh, you have to stand and pledge allegiance to the flag? I can see some Christians going, I, I feel like I can, I can pledge allegiance to the flag. That's not a problem for me. And I can think of other Christians going, I'm sorry, that word allegiance doesn't sit with, well with me at all. <laughs> like, I love my country. I'm proud of my country. But no, no, I, I'm not going to. There's only one person I can honestly, before the Lord, pledge allegiance to, and it's my Savior. So I, I can't do that in good conscience. I can see two Christians disagreeing on that. Uh, what if, I can see all this happening, the government says to parents, uh, you can no longer spank your children. It is illegal. Any form of physical punishment is illegal um, to your kids. And I can see a lot of Christian parents saying, well, we don't spank our kids anyways. We're you know, good to go. And other parents saying, I, I think that's actually part of our biblical responsibility with our kids. I think that's a pretty clear biblical view, and um, sorry, we can't do that. What if the government starts to legislate the use of people's preferred pronouns? Right? I can see a Christian saying, as an act of hospitality in this moment, I'll do that. And I can see other Christians saying, no, I can't do that. God made them male and female, and you're your preference can't dictate biblical truth, right? These are, these are hard issues that I can see Christians disagreeing on. My point being, Peter's well aware that the government, every government is corrupt and unjust. What's unfortunate is the scriptures don't give us really clear <laughs> details on how to, how to play this out all the time, all right? So what I want to do for the last, like, five, ten minutes, I want to give you the overarching uh, principle that Peter is running with, okay? And this is what we really need to hear on this issue, especially in this year that we've been through. And then we all have to sit with that principle and figure out for ourselves, how do I live, walk this out faithfully? All right, let me take you back to verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So here's the first part of the principle. You are a foreigner and an exile here, okay? Paul will say in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship isn't in Rome. Our citizenship fundamentally is not with America. You are foreigners and exiles. You do not belong to America first. You belong to the kingdom of God first. That is where your loyalty is. That's, you know, that's where your status is. That's where your citizenship is. And what that means is we no longer belong here. And we, in some senses, we're freed from the systems of the world because we belong to a different kingdom now. So you're going to have to interact with the world in a way that says, America's not my home. Kingdom of God's my home. What's interesting, though, is you might think that the New Testament writers say, in light of that, then the rules of, of Rome don't apply to you anymore. You know, American rules don't apply. You're, di- you don't, you're not even a citizen here. You don't have to abide by those rules. But they actually don't do that. They go in almost the opposite direction and say, no, it's true, you're not a citizen here, but you do abide by the rules and structures of this place. You submit to those, but you submit for a very specific reason and with a very specific purpose. And so this is what I want you to come away with today. This is what makes Christian submission distinctly Christian, okay? 
Look at verse 13 again. Here's the phrase. Submit yourselves, this is the phrase, what? For the Lord's sake to every human authority. Okay? It is that phrase, for the Lord's sake, that makes submission distinctly Christian versus some other form of submission. So let me tell you, I'm going to leave you with two things I think this means. First, in this passage, it's very clear. First, for the Lord's sake, I believe means for the Lord's reputation in the world, for the sake of the gospel's reputation in the world, okay? Look at uh, verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, in this case by submitting, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You submit so that you, you don't cast a bad light on the gospel. You silent, ignorant, foolish talk that people might say about Christians. Submission casts the gospel in a good light. Basically, what he's saying, there's something much bigger here than your own desires. The gospel is at stake. And so we abide, we cooperate, we're willing citizens for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you a passage uh, in 2 Corinthians. Here's what Paul says. He's talking here about his own ministry. He's not talking about government authorities, but I think the principle applies. He says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. He's talking about when he went to, to, to places and, and preached the gospel, he said, we lived in ways that didn't put a stumbling block, meaning we didn't live in ways that caused people to, to trip up over us, to fall over some bad way we were behaving or, or some you know, inconsistent way we were living. We want to clear the ground for the gospel. We don't want to put any stumbling blocks in people's experience of the God, at least no unnecessary <laughs> stomach blocks. And so this is what he's saying, I think, uh, what Peter is saying here is, um, for the Lord's sake, we do this because we don't want to put any stumbling blocks in people's way to experience the gospel. You know what? When, when Christians act like they're above laws that everyone else has to abide by, that's a stumbling block, right? That's a bad look that doesn't present the gospel in a good light. And so even though we are exiles here, we submit, we play as much as we humanly can, for the sake of the gospel. So here's a question I'd have for you. Um, if we're going to disobey a law or some sort of government situation, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is disobeying this law going to unnecessarily put the gospel in a bad light? Well, if it is, then we shouldn't do it, right? I mean, sometimes we have to. Like, if, if they're commanding us to do something that... God would forbid, then, well, we, then we have to do that. But is this going to unnecessarily put the gospel in bad light? Well, then, if it is, then I shouldn't disobey, right, for the sake of the gospel. And then the last thing, and this is what I, I really want you to hear today, because um, it, it applies to so much more than government. For the Lord's sake, I think also means this, that our, our submission to human authorities, whoever they are, is ultimately a submission to God himself. And that is the distinctive Christian flavor of submission, okay? Look at verse 16. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, okay? There's another oxymoron. You've been freed to be slaves, right? You've been freed. You've been freed from your sin and from condemnation and judgment. You've been freed for slavery to God, to belong to him, to serve him, to worship him, to delight in him, to give your life to him and say, my life is yours now. I offer it, on the off you know, I offer it as an offering to you. I am your servant. And so what Peter is saying here is this, as, 
as part of, Paul, or God is saying this to us, as, as part of your submission to me, I want you to submit to the emperor. But not for his sake, but for mine. And so a Christian would stand before President Biden, or any president we have in a, in a moment, a Governor Newsom, a, a mayor, the city council, and say, as Christians, we submit to you. But we do it not because we're scared of you, not because we're overly impressed by you, which we may or may not be, and not even because we're good Americans. We submit because we're submitting to the Lord. And out of our submission to the Lord, we submit to you. But our submission to you is actually a submission to the Lord. And this is the principle that runs straight through the New Testament. We're going to see it next week. He's going to talk about slaves. Submit to your masters for the Lord's sake. First century slaves for the Lord's sake. First century wives, chapter 3, submit to your husbands for the Lord's sake. And then even in the context of the Christian community, submit to one another for the Lord's sake. This runs straight through the New Testament. You submit to the Lord, and because you submit to the Lord, you're submitting to these people. But your submission to these people is actually your submission to the Lord himself. Martin Luther, great passage, or great um, quote. A Christian is the most freed free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. I think that actually beautifully captures um, the New Testament perspective on this. And so what I, what I want to do, I just want to end with this word freedom uh, that, you know, Peter uses here. And, and remind you that, that Christianity present, presents a very different view of freedom than the world does. Um, there's a worldly view of freedom that exists in every human heart. It exists in mine. It exists in yours. And it is a definition of freedom that says freedom is freedom from. Freedom is freedom from constraints. It's, it's, it's the freedom that says don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to run my life. It's part of our, those, those inner desires that w- wants and seeks independence. There's a very right-winged version of this freedom. There's a very left-winged version of this freedom. Different issues, different things, but there can be that same cor- p- posture. of Freedom is don't tell me what to do. <laughs> don't tell me how to run my life. It's a freedom from. And the gospel presents us with a very different view of freedom. Not a freedom from, but a freedom for, right? Freedom for God. Freedom for love. Freedom for service. Freedom for devotion. Freedom from the sinful cravings of our past life to be freed, to be servants of God. And so I think that's what I want to leave us with. Again, I don't have answers to all the specifics out there right now. But I think biblically, what, what each of us needs to do is step back and ask ourselves, if I have resistance to any number of authorities, I need to be self-reflective and say, why? What is, what's driving that? Right? What's, what's at the core of that? Is this a resistance for the Lord's sake? And it very well may be. Or is this a resistance that comes from a heart that says, don't tell me what to do? And it well may be that, or some combination of both. And so what we, we want to do is just present ourselves before the Lord right now. And Mark's going to come on up and just lead us in some prayer, where we bring this crazy year <laughs> and this really challenging passage, and we just bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I want to follow you. I want to I I obey you, and um, I need you to guide me in that. And we may end up, you know, 
That may look different for each one of us, but we want to do that work together. So Marcus, why don't you come on up? And we'll just present ourselves to the Lord. So how is all this hitting you? Uh, Dave and I earlier in the week were talking about <clears throat> the Sunday and decided to have me do a response to this. And as I listened to this sermon and this teaching, I, I say to myself, man, I need help. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. <laughs> I feel like a long way from the posture that the scripture is being called to uh, right now. I know um, some of you know this, you know me well. Uh, n not many years ago, I was really struggling with the biblical commandment to honor my father. And, um, and I struggled because I felt like my father wasn't living a life that was worthy of my honor. Wasn't honorable in my mind. Um, but I really eventually had to come to grips with the fact that my duty to honor my dad was not contingent upon his behavior. Um, but it was a mark of a faithful son who honored the Lord by honoring my dad and submitting in that way to God um, was an important witness to Christ. Uh, God eventually softened my heart in that way towards my dad and the spirit of God moved in my heart and, and one of the, I think one of the, the things I credit for that was I had friends who I shared this with, this problem with, who prayed for me. So it was, it was a spiritual thing. It wasn't just I changed my mind on my own. It was like spirit of God that changed my mind on this issue and softened my heart. And so that's what we want to do right now is um, this might feel like beyond your ability to just, I'm going to just be different and think differently about this. But I need actually the spirit of God to do something deep in my heart and mind to help me kind of respond along these lines faithfully as we should. Uh, I read this morning 1 Timothy 2. It says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, to intercede on their behalf and to give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand truth. And so we want to pray for those in authority, but we want to pray with sincerity. And if we can't pray with sincerity, we have a bit of a problem. So we need to pray for sincerity. <laughs> right? Right? Lord, help me to want to want kind of thing, you know? Um, so why don't we just pray? So we just bow your heads and let's pray together for this. And as we have our eyes closed, let's just take a moment to, to reflect on our current state of mind and heart in regard to everything that we've been talking about today. 
and, and just ask ourselves the question, what, what do I find there? Do I find disdain uh, or a spirit of defiance or something worse? Sincere prayer for those in authority will be really hard to come by from that kind of place. And so if you identify with that, I just want to encourage you right now to take a moment to confess this to the Lord right now. Just say to the Lord, this is true about me, well, Father. <laughs> you need to help me. Please help me. And some of you may have really generous hearts towards those in authority. And, um, and if that's not you, I just encourage you to imagine what that would look like. Compassion for those whose minds may be clouded in spiritual darkness. Love for people that may defy the circumstances that you see happening around you, being generous towards them. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. A it's a characteristic of God, by the way, that we all know. In fact, that we've named our fellowship here for for. Father, you've called us into this kind of life, this way of life, and also to pray for all people, for all those who are in authority, and for some of us uh, to do so out of love with sincere hearts feels really challenging. It does for me. So we ask you to help us. Help us first to see ourselves accurately, that is, sinners saved by grace. And may that reality humble us and give us compassion towards those in authority and deference towards all. And Lord, we pray for our leaders that, first of all, you would draw them to yourself, that you would make yourself known to them, that you might change hearts and minds so that they may lead and act and decide in ways that would reflect your heart and your kingdom. But if they continue to live in darkness, may we be people who are witnesses to the light not just by the values that we declare, but by the quality of our lives because of our spirit, our behavior, and the way we honor others, the way of, a way of being in this world that is a display that we love you more than anything else and we seek to live our lives submitting to you and in a way that is pleasing to you. So Lord, will you help us? We need help. 
In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.